This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Welcome to this session, which is going to be a mix of a couple of uh, pitch presentations and then we're going to be having some lightning talks. So to start off, we uh, have oh, – just to sort of talk a little bit about the format. So we'll have uh, 20 minutes for each um, pitch uh, presentation. So Joanne, who will be up first, will speak for five minutes and then what we'll do is be opening it up to the group uh, to ask questions and comment uh, and then also our panel um, today of Rosemary Bryant, Andrew Knight and Deborah Kay will also be um, providing some feedback to Joanne as well. Um, when we have any questions, we you have a microphone, so we're recording this session, so please make sure that you speak to, in a microphone so that we can capture your comments. And then finally, I realised I didn't introduce myself. Uh, I'm Robin Lindner and I'm one of the client relations managers at NPS Medicine Wise. So to kick things off, um, Joanne is going to be talking about preventive health, engaging patients with technology. Let's develop a patient-centred preventive health record. Over to you, Joe. Thank you, Robin. Am I clear through this microphone in the room? Yes. Um, I will declare I am an employee of NPS MedicineWise, and I have to thank NPS for uh, letting me present today uh, through our abstract process. But I'm here pitching uh, actually as a uh, public health pharmacist and a consumer in the health system, not as an employee of NPS, on uh, developing a patient-controlled preventive health record. Now, I think Australia is a lucky country. 85% of us report good health in the Australian Health Survey, and the stats back this up. We are living for longer, and we are living more years disability-free. But over a million of us live with chronic disease. And when you look at the risk factors for chronic disease, 99% of the Australian population have at least one modifiable risk factor from those listed there. And about two-thirds of us have three or more of these modifiable risk factors. So I think we're lucky that that burden of chronic disease isn't bigger, but these modifiable risk factors make up 31% of the burden of disease in Australia. And I think this is a problem we could be tackling from a new approach. So what's out there to help preventive health? Preventive health is mainly uh, lumped on primary care. There are dozens of guidelines out there to suggest what tests, procedures and behaviours patients and doctors should be discussing and performing. But all of these require time to be allocated to preventive health. Either a patient making the effort to approach their doctor to ask about tests and procedures or a doctor making time during a, a consultation that was probably booked for an acute presentation to discuss chronic disease prevention. So what about the consumer perspective? Realistically, uh, very much building on Harriet's slide, we could be empowering consumers in the preventive health component of, uh, of the health journey. And I think the My Health record offers an opportunity. I think this year, with it going from opt-in to opt-out, this might start to change the empowerment of consumers controlling their own health journey. But there's also a lot of technology out there, some of it from the health sector, like our own NPS MedicineWise app, where patients can track their conditions and their medicines and be linked with evidence-based information. But outside the health system, I would say every single person in this room is carrying around a device that can track your step count, that you can be tracking your calorie intakes, and whether it's a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, you're getting feedback available to you on a daily basis that you could use and engage with your health professionals around preventive health. But do preventive health and technology actually meet? 
the best example I've been able to find of a preventive health record are the child health records. It's a slightly different colour book in every state, but largely every uh, parent, when they have a child, is presented a book that outlines what consultations, screening, immunisations are recommended to give their child the best chance of a healthy life through the first five years of life. But there's nothing that really continues beyond that point that says what happens next? How often should you be going to the doctor for a checkup as a teenager, as an adult? Some of these are starting to digitise. In some states, information is starting to populate into the My Health record, or some states are developing apps that provide that same information in an electronic digital format that might be a little bit more portable than a giant uh, book. But when I look overseas, there are a lot of um, companies and countries developing apps that try to address preventive health, but they're not necessarily consumer um, friendly. They might list a bunch of tests that should be done at your age and your gender. They don't empower the patient to have that conversation with their health professional. And I think now that we're starting to get national databases like the My Health Record or the National Cancer Screening Register, the Australian Immunisation Register, if we could have a digital record that pulled all of this information together, what, you sh what is recommended and what's already been done, then we can actually keep track of how we're going. And an evidence-based example I'm happy to talk about further with anyone that's interested is the My Preventive Care Record, which was uh, piloted in Virginia in eight practices. One in six patients took it up, and the patients that took up their preventive health record were more likely to have the recommended screening tests performed. So my pitch is that Australia should be using this emergence of digital records and consumer empowerment to develop a patient or consumer-controlled preventive health record. Ideally, this would be a personalised record that a, a consumer and their GP personalised based on family history, personal history, genomic testing, that who knows, in the future we might include uh, information from their... Uh, their phenome, their microme, uh, but to develop a personalised preventive health plan. But at a minimum, there should be one that based on a patient's age, gender and information that they're willing to share could help them go, this is what you could be discussing with your doctor. But not just that doctor. Once it exists, they can take it back to their doctor, the consumer can follow up. But if they see another doctor, they move into state, they can take, take that information and the new doctor has all of the information to know where they're up to with their preventive health. They can take it to the specialist who might be supervising their screening for high-risk diseases. But they can also take it outside of the general practice setting. A lot of pharmacies sell preventive health, so they can take it to the pharmacist and only get tested for the tests that might be recommended that, that the patient agrees to. Their workplace may offer workplace health screening, or their health fund might be happy to do that as well. The questions I have for this room and the panel are really to help me shape how we act, implement this. What platform we, do we use? Should it be built into the My Health Record or built as a standalone website? Should we build it into a smartphone app, such as the MedicineWise app, or as a standalone app? Who do we partner with to make this happen? Someone has to do the hard work, getting all of these systems to integrate, but someone also has to fund this, and I have several ideas, but I'm very much open to feedback. And when we start to prioritise who we offer this to and who we might pilot this in, there are different populations that we could um, target, from the people who already get targeted through preventive health strategies like the 0 to 5 years age group, to the population that falls through the gaps. 
school leavers transitioning from childhood to adulthood, or vulnerable sectors of the population, such as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities or migrants who may not have the health literacy to navigate the Australian healthcare system. And who funds it, of course, is going to be very different depending on if you're seeking uh, the health fund as your funder or partnering with people like PHNs to target lower socioeconomic areas. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Joe. I love the idea of thinking about who the participants should be if we're looking at trying to encourage health literacy, that idea you get it when you're at school, it becomes something that you, you develop while you're at school. Okay, I would like to open it out to the group. Um, if people have got any, what would like to respond to Joe's pitch? Thanks, Joe. Sarah Spagnati from NPS Medicine Wise. Interested to discuss your thoughts on funders. Um, my view is that there is certainly a lot to be gained from a health fund as a funder. Um, and I think they would see something like this as very beneficial to reducing claims and also being able to predict likelihood of um, outlay and things like that. And perhaps it um, opens a model to different sorts of tiered, uh, different sorts of um, policies for people depending on where they sat on the spectrum. Yeah. But interested in your thoughts on funding. I certainly listed the health fund as someone uh, other than, of course, governmental sources uh, to fund something like this because they will get the return on investment over time. Uh, approximately 47% of the population has private health insurance that covers hospital admissions or extras. So certainly they would be able to help the top half of the socioeconomic scale. Um, but I also feel that a platform that could be used by the health funds and link through to potentially their uh, consumer offerings, such as the coach program or similar programs, um, would be to uh, have one interface that could link through theirs to their own offerings and the extras offerings that they have, like dietitians that could help patients on that preventive health journey. But you could have the same interface meet differently for low socioeconomic groups who might not have the health fund access to community organisations that offer the same uh, or not-for-profit sectors like the, the LIFE program for patients who may show that they're at risk of diabetes, linking consumers to evidence-based resources rather than relying on Dr Google. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Pauline. I'm from the Federation for Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia. Um, and we have got a um, uh, strong interest in the My Health Record uh, program. Um, my question is, and I'm happy to see that uh, you have uh, vulnerable groups as uh, one population group you are targeting, and that you have um, uh, uh, singled out um, those uh, 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 specific groups, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, uh, Australians from a cultural and linguistically diverse background. Now, my question is, uh, what strategies um, do you have in place to engage uh, these uh, vulnerable groups? Um, how, given their low literacy, some, some of them, and uh, you've mentioned health literacy, uh, which I think is quite critical to think about, cultural competency as well, something also to think about. But what uh, strategies do you have in place to ensure that uh, these population groups engage uh, with the My Health Record system? Uh, I will very much admit that that is probably one of my areas of weakness in this, is that there are populations where I don't actually have the expertise to know how to engage that um, population. So my intention in that regard is to find out who should we be partnering with, who does engage with these vulnerable um, communities, and work with them to develop 
whatever interface it is, an app or a website, in a way that is suitable for low health literacy that might be very image-based, but also so that they can engage each population. Um, I certainly have a better understanding of the health system and private health funds and the marketing that they can send out to their uh, policyholders, but that's why I, I asked the question of who could we partner with. So I'd very much value if there are people that you think would we, we sh um, I should or we should partner with uh, who could help us reach particular vulnerable populations. Thanks, Joanne. I, I heard about Joanne's project the other night and I thought it was awfully exciting. Um, I, lo I love your idea of your focus on well-being, so rather than, than uh, us consumers turning to, to things just in sickness, we're actually looking after our well-being and being proactive. So I think it's an absolutely awesome idea. I think some of your partners could be the consumer groups, uh, FECA and the Consumers Health Forum and various other groups, and just use their insights to, to work out how to do this. Um, and other partners might be like the Royal College of GPs that they've, and, and those sort of places as well, or even the software, um, uh, the, the, the clinical practice information software um, companies themselves, because I understand their packages also have alerts as well. Um, something as a health consumer, I'd like everything rolled into one. So the more linkages you can have into other things like the My Health Record or, or other, or, or My Health Fund or whatever, the better, because I don't want to jump into 15 apps to look after my health care. And if you're going to help me look after my well-being, maybe you could roll it all into whatever, an app or a website or whatever you're... I completely agree. Yeah. I think one of the key things that would have to have access to my health re record data so that that could populate in and fill in the gaps rather than someone having to go seek all of that um, or be built into the my health record. I can actually see some advantages with an app that's portable um, versus a website but I also recognise that technology changes and your phone changes. So you might have an app saved in an iPhone, but in 18 months' time, your work gives you a new Samsung. And how do you actually make sure that that information is backed up and available in another device? I think there has to be some form of web-based platform. And no matter what, that it needs to be interoperable. I, uh, to share a personal example, I can log into my health record and see I had tests done, but I can't see the results. So I can't actually tell my new GP in Melbourne what test results I got from my old GP in Sydney. So that's where I also think what is visible is important too, not just that I've had it tested but what the results were. Can I say the other thing I love about your approach is you're trying to work out what solution, what, what problem to solve. You want to help us consumers look after our well-being. You haven't gone, jumped to a certain technology and tried to work out how to use this technology to fix that you're continuing to define what problem you're solving and how you're going to solve it. And then what platform or app or website or databases, that's secondary. So I think keep defining what you're solving and what partners and what the partners then think you should have. Keep your focus on that for a while longer and then let the techno us technology, I'm also technology, technology people get involved. Thank you. Uh, I will also admit I received an interesting piece of feedback from a colleague who works on the MedicineWise app about a funding source, which is that you build in linking, such as an appointment-making process, so that you get your little report when you go through it. It tells you you could make an appointment for your doctor, and when you click through and make an appointment, you can fund it through getting a portion of the commission that that appointment-making um, app has. So there are various ways that you could actually um, source funding other than direct large sum money. It could actually self-fund ongoing use. One more question and then I will go to our panel. So it's Claire Larder. I'm from the TGA, but really speaking more as a, a consumer and as a parent. Um, I wonder whether you could actually integrate it into some, uh, some of the curriculum and so partner with the education department because 
I think you've got um, kids, they already have to do certain personal health, um, personal development, that sort of work, and actually getting them engaged with technology as a way to look after their health would be useful. And we see, you know, the banks have got onto that. You've got your Dolomite from kindy. And a lot of people, you know, just don't bother to change. So it's a way of actually getting people in and then also they take that home and you might engage parents and, and you might, might be a way to access some of your vulnerable groups as well. It's very much one of the reasons I have this as one of the target populations. I think if we intervene, intervene earlier and empower individuals earlier, then that will have flow-on benefits over the decades to follow. But also at that age, you can take personal responsibility for your own health. You're allowed to get prescriptions filled without consent from the age of 16. Um, and it's that transitionhood from your parents make decisions for you to you learn how to make your own health decisions. And so it would be connecting people and improving health literacy as they grow into adulthood um, is very much one. And it's also the age where people move. They've had a family GP for 16 years. They've moved the university for work to travel the world. So I think having something from that age before they fall out of the health system um, to keep them engaged, not necessarily frequently, but engaged appropriately. We've heard a few consumer perspectives. We have a GP on our panel. I'm interested, Andrew, in your thoughts. If, if a consumer came in with this type of information, what are your thoughts? Well, it's a really attractive idea, and I like the way you presented it. I thought, I love 99%. That was that first slide. It's very convincing, and I think building up the convincing case is really an important part of, of winning this. Um, as a GP, it's quite challenging. Um, the way we mainly do it is with reminders in our electronic records. So it pops up every so often, you need your immunisation or you're supposed to have your pap smear or have you had your colorectal screening done. Um, so I was wondering whether there could be some... Interoperability for this is the key. The trouble is when I start to think about it, the degree of interoperability is mind-blowing because it would be obviously my health record. It'd be great if it, if it was interoperable with some GP software so that um, the GP could be confident that the reminder was going through the app or vice versa. Um, but then there's the Australian immunisation record. Obviously, a really important thing for prevention is your pneumococcal dew, you know. It's, uh, but then there's the cancer screening <laughs> one as well. So I think... Uh, so that's a big challenge. Uh, how you do that, I don't know. That seems technically beyond me. Uh, but surely if they could, like that one that we saw that app early on in the, in the conference that brought all your pathology together, if they can do that, surely they can bring all the other things together. Um, I think uh, ever, it's really a social intervention you're doing here as much as a data inter intervention. What works? What gets people to change? And there's quite a lot of research being done on M Health, mobile health. <laughs> Yes. So I think you'd need to get across that literature to build your case. Um, and it would be very... If you, you had one example, it would be much more convincing if you had an overwhelming list of examples of how this works. So uh, I think uh, evidence of efficacy is going to be really important, and it's not just the data, it's actually the, the, the channel yes. as well that you're going to choose. So I think that would be really valuable. And then, and then to build up a proposal that was convincing... Um, I think in terms of funding, the obvious one is the, I agree, is the uh, health funds. So they would fund it because, I, I, well, I think they would fund it. They certainly fund coaching and other interventions, which they see reduce admissions. And I think, if they, think, I think they would think this would make their population healthier in the longer term and so it'd be a relatively easy case. And there's lots of people that you could get contact with through um, uh, medicine-wise that could help you to make that case and to work through that. So, uh, but 
I'd be really sorry if it stopped there. Vulnerable groups, I think in any design, you should have specifications which insisted that you could use it in other areas. So it could be developed by the health funds, and they would probably want a competitive advantage against their competitors. So that's a bit of an issue, but we would really want it to be able to spread. Uh, to to be able to be more generally used by the population. So you, you'd have to think through your, strat your business strategy there. It would be a tragedy if this was Only uh, to the top snafu'd 47%. by one health fund and their relatively wealthy clients. So um, that's I'm actually glad you mentioned mHealth. A lot of the research I found was for patients living with chronic disease rather than for preventive health. Um, and even when I looked at all of the health fund apps that exist in the Australian market, um, only one of the health funds has something resembling a preventive health app, but it's more about well-being. So it's are you doing your steps, are you getting your sleep? Mm. So it's much more like the Apple Watch mm. model rather than from a health perspective, how and uh, could you be working with the health system uh, as well? Well, I know... Bangladesh didn't do a book. They do mobile phone reminders because amazingly enough in the developing world, as I understand it, everyone's got a smartphone. And I also like that if you get a reminder saying oh, you're due for your cervical smear, it could also say, well, while you're making an appointment to go to the doctors, here's some other things that might be due over mm. the next amount of time too mm. so that you don't make multiple appointments when you could actually have a planned preventive health appointment that ticked off several. I'm interested in that as feedback. Uh, we're short on time. This has generated a lot of great discussion, but I would like to provide both Deborah and Rosemary an opportunity to comment. Just very quickly, from a consumer perspective, love the idea, pursue it, market research with the people who count, who are the people who want to use it. I'd like to put another lens on it. Um, what's missing if you put a consumer lens on this is why I would want to do that. And why I want to do it is I want to work, I want to learn, I want to play, I want to grow. What are my goals? There was a report from the Health Foundation in the UK in 2014, person-centred care interaction, which says health services are measuring the wrong things. Health services are successful if people achieve their personal goals and they can show how they enabled them to do it. And if I could transport my personal goals and have a conversation about... I want to be able to finish my footy match and go up to the next grade, therefore what do I need to do? That's a very simplistic example, but I'd just like to suggest that if you made it person-centred, not health service delivery-centred, then your business partners change, for example, a communications company, all sorts of corporate opportunities. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Um, yes, uh, so from a, uh, I agree with what you both said. Um, but uh, there are two points I guess I'd like to make. Firstly, about health literacy. And I think it's very important to start young if we're for the future, so that's important. Uh, but there's a whole lot of people out there who are not very health literate today, many of them. So I think that that's, education is really important how you make them sort of get into a position to be able to communicate what their the sort of consumer input. Um, the other is the funding, and I think the My Health record is, as you've said, Andrew, is it's essential. <clears throat> but the health funds, and you know, you may approach. I mean, it may be that's where some there is money there, but one of the problems is that. Um, it leaves out a lot of vulnerable populations, 
you've said, um, are covered by health funds. That's not even half of us. And secondly, um, it uh, one moves from health fund to well, well, put it this way: at the beginning of the financial year of, for health funds, I get lots of phone calls about, you know, do I well, not phone calls or emails? Do I want to continue? Should I, because I'm in a vulnerable, because I'm older population, should I be moving my health fund, etc.? So, therefore, um, being with one fund and the other issue that you've mentioned, Andrew, about um, their health funds um, all wanting to compete, and of course the big ones having a lot more money than a lot of the smaller ones. So there's those sorts of things that you would have to consider. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Well, I think there's no doubt that we all agree that we need this, um, and I think that's generated some fantastic discussion. So thank you. So moving on to our next presenters. So we have uh, Noni Richards and Alicia Smith. So we've developed a tool that is slightly different to this heading, but we'll go through that. <laughs> so um, we've done a number of pharmacoepidemiology studies on New Zealand's health databases, and we've identified a number of issues with um, anti-epileptic use among women, both um, women of childbearing age and pregnant women. So we found that use of anti-epileptic drugs among women of childbearing age was increasing over time, and that GPs were the main prescribers, accounting for about 60% of the prescriptions in this age group. So why do we care about that? Well, there's a number of issues we also identified in, with maternal use of um, anti-epileptics. So we have found an increased rate of um, spontaneous abortion if you had been taking anti-epileptics during pregnancy. And then we also found that women taking them during pregnancy, had, there was limited use of therapeutic drug monitoring or dose adjustment of lamotrigine and levetiracetam. And the maternal use of sodium valproate was um, associated with uh, worse outcomes or the increased rate of referral for developmental concerns at age four. And that's in line with international evidence. So we thought that there's probably a number of gaps that contribute to these issues. So uh, the first one is that women taking anti-epileptics when they are pregnant, they're cared for by multiple health professionals. So you might have midwives, GPs, uh, neurologists, obstetrician, psychiatrists. So this can lead to gaps in the availability and access of uh, the clinical notes. And there's also, there's varying degrees of knowledge about the management of women taking anti-epileptics during pregnancy. So um, they can, we've found, like we said, that there was, uh, there was inconsistent use of therapeutic drug monitoring. And then, the, the, obviously, the gap that occurs before all others is an unplanned pregnancy. So many of the interventions to um, minimise the adverse effects of anti-epileptics on the fetus need to be begun before pregnancy. So that's taking high-dose folic acid or using a safer alternative um, anti-epileptic. So once the pregnancy's already um, found out, those interventions are often too late. So for that reason, we decided to start at the beginning of the journey and identify women uh, who were taking anti-epileptics and who were thinking about coming, becoming pregnant now or in the near future. And then we thought commonly, like um, patient portals are more often used uh, now and 
we thought this is a good way to empower women to access their um, data. All right, so the, I, um, the idea of what we want to do is to try and inform women about the risks of um, using these medicines and then becoming pregnant before they actually become pregnant. So um, we've developed, uh, or this is a mock-up of what something would look like, which is a patient portal, kind of similar to the My Health Record. So this is a place where patients come at the moment to make appointments with their GP, see results from their tests, order repeats, um, things like that. You can store allergies and things in it. So we've um, taken it one step further and have developed the um, little pregnancy icon that you can see there with the alert button. So if a woman's taking one of those medicines and is of childbearing age, that uh, pregnancy icon and alert would pop up within their portal. Um, and then uh, they would get messaging, which is on the uh, far side here. So this is asking them to let um, this, the doctor know whether or not they're thinking about becoming pregnant. Um, sort of in the near future or maybe a little bit further out or whether they're not planning on becoming pregnant. Depending on um, what they tick here, um, that, that alert gets sent to the GP, um, but it also will um, prompt the patient to, or be direct patients to educational information either on medicines use in pregnancy or appropriate contraceptive um, measures if they're not planning on becoming pregnant. So once they've selected their thing, so for example, if they did select that they are thinking about becoming pregnant, then um, when the doctor logs into their um, uh, patient management system at the next visit, um, they would see an alert come up like this to let the doctor know that that patient's um, decided they're thinking about becoming pregnant, and therefore it might be more appropriate um, choices of medicines um, for that woman if, if, when they become pregnant. So then um, initially this hub would just contain, um, so the link out for the information would contain patient and health professional information, so the same messages but slightly differently aligned for um, health professionals versus patients. And in the future we would see that the pregnancy icon actually holds lots of things about pregnancy so that that problem about the multiple health professionals across the spectrum can be minimised with um, all clinical notes, scan results, labs, because at the moment women just carry around a little paper book um, for their pregnancy so this would be um, having a different approach to that. So, thank you. Um, I guess what we're, the main questions we're looking for, is there any potential pitfalls we haven't thought of and does anyone have any ideas for enhancements or improvements? Uh, hello, Joe Gross from NBS. Um, I very much see the benefit for epilepsy, but as soon as I saw this, I also thought there's a lot of other medicines that you need to be careful around uh, in women of reproductive age. And if they tick a box around no, not getting pregnant, does it also raise the discussion of what contraceptives have you in place to prevent unintended pregnancy because of the potential harms? Yeah, so that was one of the options, is that if they do click no, they're not, then it would give them the information around um, interactions with medicines, what contraception measures to take, those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's both ends. And for the doctor. Yeah, and for the doctor as well, so the same thing, yeah. <coughs> I, I guess I had a bit of a related question in terms of, I can imagine there are other conditions too where this type of um, uh, tool would be really valuable as well. Have you thought about that? Yeah, so we sort of thought if we just start with one condition and one small amount of medicines and get that going, um, then it's easy to expand it out to either other medicines in pregnancy or other conditions in pregnancy as well. Yeah. And that was the plan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the plan, yeah. Hi, I've just got a question around the interoperability of your IT systems and platforms. I know that we have huge issues with integration of care between specialist IT 
um, with local GPs. Um, our electronic medical records don't even speak to each other within New South Wales Health. So that creates a huge issue. So even though um, one group might have, like your GPs might have access, how accessible that is that when they then end up in an ED? Is it all interlinked? You might, you might actually have a much more um, streamlined system. Um, wishful thinking that we had everything linked up. <laughs> not, not quite. So um, at, at this point, we can't talk very. We are getting more um, widespread linking. So there's um, like the South Island now has a system that can talk between GPs and hospital, but it's quite basic amount of information that can be um, pulled out. But it is, I guess, slowly growing. Um, so the interoperability of everything's not quite there yet. Yeah. So Claire Lutter from TGA again. Um, I was wondering particularly, perhaps not so much for these types of medicines, but if you expanded into other particularly um, highly teratogenic drugs that are, you know, at most risk before women often are, are realising they're pregnant if they're not actively trying, whether you could also link in um, information for pharmacists to ask the question at the point of dispensing as well so you can really try to minimise those risks. In Australia, the thalidomides and things can only be provided on a monthly prescription. They're meant to exclude pregnancy before repeating the prescription, but there's other teratogenic, teratogenic drugs that have um, don't have those controls in place. I think something that would put an extra control or more patient, a trigger for patient counselling, not only at prescription but also at dispensing and for the patient themselves would be useful to consider too. Thank, thank you. Great presentation, great concept. Keep going. Um, I couldn't see it in there. Um, I just wanted to make a point that uh, pregnant women, women planning to be pregnant, vulnerable women who may or may not have an unplanned pregnancy at any time come from a perspective that may say the baby's health is more important than yours. They may be in a vulnerable position and not want to disclose anything about um, their particular needs and so on. So I guess is there a way you can position the woman's first interface with this so that there's some kind of reassurance that it's possible to keep you safe and your baby safe and this is not a judgmental process? Is that making sense to you? Because a, a lot of women won't disclose one way or the other. They have family pressures, cultural pressures, domestic violence pressures, you know, all sorts of things. Is there a way to re reassure this isn't values-based one way or the other? Is this, is this whether you're saying that you're planning on becoming pregnant? Just when you, when you come into contact with what you design, not making an assumption or conveying an assumption that the woman is more important baby's health's more important, whatever. This is a safe space to come and disclose. We can help you work through the resolution to having to change your current medication regime, all sorts of things. I've worked through this um, in sexual health services. I've worked through it with uh, women with asthma. I've worked through it with vulnerable communities who sometimes think more medication's always better because they've come from places where there was not access to medicine. So st stepping back and making sure that when people hit it, it's about them, it's about their baby, together we can work this out so everyone's safe. Does that make sense? It makes heaps of sense and it's actually a really good point and something we need to look at because it's easy to come at it from 
our point of view, which is very health professional <laughs> focus, and it is good to get a consumer how they're taking it. Thank you. Um, yeah, great presentation. Thank you. My, given that I'm not particularly across the New Zealand health record, um, can you just uh, can um, we be assured that all the health professionals um, involved have access to this record? In other words, uh, when one is when a, patient, a person becomes pregnant. She will then. She may go to a midwife. She may go to an obstetrician. She may go to a GP. So they're the. Th I mean, they're just a minimum of three, uh, or even a more specialist obstetrician, possibly four um, uh, health professional groups involved. So, is the interoperability of the record, is that a, the information available to all those professionals? Um, I guess that's why we kind of cheated a little bit and went right back to the start because then we only have to worry about the one person which is the before pregnancy bit so that would usually be the GP taking care of the woman or whoever their main uh, healthcare provider is. Yeah, yeah. Once we move to the system where you have uh, or want to link up all the different things like test results and stuff, um, I think the first point would it be it would be just within the patient's own um, portal which means they could access and provide it to um, whoever's treating them, so it's right. kind of fast-forwarding, okay. trying to, I guess, right. a cheat's okay. way of linking things. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it is linked. I mean, that, that's yeah. particularly important um, in this situation because there are certainly more than one, uh, the possibility <coughs> of having more than one healthcare provider. I, I like it because it's a problem that, as a GP, you worry about. You've got a person in front of you who's pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, and you think, gee, what do I do? Um, I thought, I think like what you were getting at, Deb, it's a bit scary, the way you've presented it. Uh, being on anti-epileptics and pregnant causes this and this and this, and yet there's so many women are going to do that because they need to do that. So it needs to be presented in a solutions focus or a positive focus. Great. We can, we can optimise the outcomes or you know, we can make it go as well as possible for you, with you. So I think that's a, it's really important to think in those terms, otherwise you're going to scare a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I had a few questions like... That record that you mocked up there, does that exist or is this something you're creating purely for this problem? Um, I think our design looks cooler, but I guess the concept <laughs> the concept is already built and available. Yeah. Okay, good, because yeah. I wasn't sure. Because as a generalist, <laughs> I immediately think um, I don't want another app just for anti-epileptic no, no, drugs in no. pregnancy. It's, it, it's got to be part of the overall picture um, you, you said GPs do most of the prescribing. Actually, as a GP, I think that maybe is of anti-epileptics, but in this situation, I think most clinicians would say, I don't know enough to know the latest information about this, and it would probably go to, to specialist advice. So you really need to think about who is your target. I think obviously the person with the, the woman is going to be a major target because they are the most concerned, usually, about this issue, but the decision-makers are going to be probably at a specialist level, I think, but you need so, to think yeah, that through. We, we found that it's pretty much all the mainly GPs, so they, um, they maybe that's just our lack of specialists tr to be able to get to women to see. Okay. So just the run-of-the-mill day-to-day is definitely GP prescribing. So they might be doing the prescribing, but are they making the decision that's slightly different? Yes, so a lot of the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, I think those are the main things that I wanted to... But great idea. Thank I think you. it's a problem that needs to be solved here. One last question. 
This builds on uh, the comments made by both Deborah and um, Rosemary. My apologies. Uh, another system that I think this needs to interoperate with that I'm not sure if is it in, in New Zealand in the same way, but there's an Australian registry of um, a pregnancy registry which follows outcomes in the children of women who have babies while on epilepsy medicines. And I think it's not only one decision that is available. There are lots of different decisions that a patient and their GP or their neurologist and their gynecologist and obstetrician might make. And the, the consent aspect about that, that they could consent to have all of that data recorded so we can actually improve the safety data available to actually inform future women that to help those decisions in the future. Is there a similar registry in New Zealand? No, there's not. No, so you have got the special registry, but which is excellent, but it is only for women with epilepsy, I think, as far as I'm aware. So then you miss out all of the women that are taking it for migraine and pain and bipolar disorder. So um, I think if you're building this, then that's an opportunity, is to use it to actually get that safety data. Yeah. Yeah. So at the moment, lots of our... Um, our health records that are a lot more linked than Australia. So um, one of the studies that Noni's led is actually looking at the outcomes of, of children from, of women who have taken this. So we are a wee bit lucky with our data. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much. So everyone, if you could thank Noni and Alicia and also Joanne. Oh, and sorry, yes. And thank you to our expert panel of Deborah, Andrew and Rosemary. Thanks very much. So we're now going to have a series of lightning talks. And I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Madiha Malik to speak to you. Madiha has come all the way from Pakistan to speak to you, and she is the winner of our Asia-Pacific Scholarship for NPS Medicine Wise. So welcome, Madiha. Um, good morning. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank NMS for providing me with this opportunity to come and speak here. I am Professor Dr. Madiha Malik, and I'm working as a director of pharmacy school at Hamdard University, Islamabad, Pakistan. Today, I would like to talk about perceptions of healthcare professionals regarding quality, safety, and price of anti-diabetics and antihypertensive agents in Pakistan. Uh, before coming to uh, the results, I would like to share a brief profile of Pakistan uh, for a better understanding that what is the healthcare system in Pakistan and what are the challenges we are facing here. And it was really enlightening when I have attended different sessions over here. And probably I'll be going back and I'll be uh, replicating so many things back at home. I have a lot to take back. So uh, coming to my, uh, to come into the profile of Pakistan, basically the total population of Pakistan is 207 million. That makes Pakistan the sixth most populous country in the world. So if I talk about the gender distribution, 60% of the population is represented by the youth. And the life expectancy here in Pakistan is 68.1 years on average. So you can see that we have got the uh, two ma major problems, that is the population burden as well as the aging. And the literacy rate of Pakistan is 58%, but uh, to be honest, uh, all those people who can write uh, their name are known, are counted as literate in Pakistan, and the actual literacy rate is very low as what has been quoted over here. The infant mortality rate is the 52.1 
deaths per 1,000 live births, and that is a maternal mortality rate is 178 deaths per 100,000 live births. The total GDP of the country is 283.7 billion US dollars, and it is very unfortunate that only 0.6% of the total budget is being spent on health in Pakistan. 80% is out of pocket spending. If I talk about the healthcare system of Pakistan, we have got three tiers. The, at the primary healthcare level, which includes the community pharmacy, rural health centers, dispensaries, then comes the secondary healthcare level, which includes the districts and the Hasil, uh, hospitals, and then there is the tertiary care hospitals, which in uh, the tertiary level, which includes the tertiary care hospitals. Talking about the healthcare infrastructures, we have got only 1167 hospitals, and that makes 1,613 population per bed. So you can uh, really well imagine about the healthcare infrastructure of Pakistan. Talking about the healthcare workforce, we have nearly 0.2 million uh, registered doctors in Pakistan and 94,000 uh, registered nurses in Pakistan. And Pakistan has been categorized as one of the 57 countries facing human resource management and health crisis. Okay, now coming about the health challenges in Pakistan, approximately 21.9 million people are suffering from diabetes. That makes the ratio of 1 is to 7 for diabetes prevalence among population age 20 or above in Pakistan. Hypertension affects 18% of the adults and 33% of the adults above 45 years old. And 30 to 40% of all the deaths are due to CVS diseases in Pakistan. Pakistan ranks, among, ranks on fifth number among the high burden countries with TB, and Pakistan is among the only three countries in the world with ongoing polio transmission. And Pakistan ranks among ninth out of 188 countries in terms of obesity, and the prevalence of hepatitis B and C is quite alarming in Pakistan. And nearly 50 million people are suffering from mental health diseases in Pakistan. So you see, we have got a lot of challenges in Pakistan which we really need to tackle. And the health literacy is, health literacy is really very uh, you know, uh, low. And uh, unfortunately, if I talk about the health literacy of the healthcare professionals, uh, I was very disappointed that we conducted a study and in which we found that health literacy of nurses were uh, below uh, the below margin. So they, that was uh, poor among the even the, among the nurses in Pakistan. So talking about the pharmacy profession or the pharma market in Pakistan, Pakistan has 3.3 billion USD uh, dollars pharma market. We have got 600 registered local pharma companies, which constitutes of 60% of the market share by volume. We have got 14 multinational companies in Pakistan, which uh, takes 60% of the market share by value. So basically, there is brand prescribing in Pakistan. There is no generic prescribing in Pakistan. So we had an experience of generic prescribing in 1972 in Pakistan, which failed badly due to the monopoly of multinational companies. And uh, with a lot of apologies, the doctors in Pakistan. So now we have got like more than 80,000 registered drugs in Pakistan. So you see, there are a lot of drugs, there are a lot of brands coming in, there are a lot of, there is a sea of brands in Pakistan. And nearly 20 registered brands for each class of anti-diabetics and anti-hypertensive agents in Pakistan. Basically, our pharma market is regulated by uh, Drug Regulated Authority of Pakistan under the Pharma Act. Uh, that is Drug Act 1976 and Drug Act 2012. 80% of the raw material is imported from India and China, but the industry fulfills the need of 90% of the finished products uh, for the country. There are 67,000 community pharmacies in Pakistan, 67 pharmacy schools, and 100 pharmacy technician schools in Pakistan, and there are 33,000 registered pharmacists in Pakistan. 
So if I talk about the pharmacy, the concept of pharmacy practice in Pakistan, pharmacy practice is a very new concept in Pakistan. It started back in 2007. So what we have been, uh, what we have, we have been trying to do over the last decade was that we developed a critical mass, and which there was there was lack of empirical or evidence-based data in Pakistan regarding the social problems and the health challenges in Pakistan. So what we did was that there are only eight people who are PhD in clinical pharmacy in Pakistan, and only one postdoc in Pakistan, that is me, who, have, who has <laughs> clinical, who has her postdoctorate in uh, clinical pharmacy. So what we did was that this group emerged as the initiator, and they become instrumental in producing evidence-based data. And we've got some support from the international experts from different countries who help us in shaping and defining the uh, role of clinical pharmacy in Pakistan. So, and we have been able to do, and we have been able to come up with different studies and to, provide, to produce uh, empirical-based data in terms of comparative drug pricing, role of pharmacists in health quality of life, role of evaluation of different control programs, generic prescribing, standard treatment guidelines, and dispensing practices, health policy and drug policy, and you would be amazed to know that there is no medicine policy in Pakistan till date. And essential drug list of Pakistan was update, last updated in 2005, but we are working on it, and now we are coming up with the new version in 2018. So after all these challenges and you know conducted all these research, what we identified that we found that the major challenges which we are facing in Pakistan, which includes irrational drug use, lack of access to essential drugs, implementation of EDL, Drug stockouts and the foremost uh, issue in Pakistan is lack of acceptance of role of pharmacists by the healthcare team. And there's lack of policy and advocacy in Pakistan, but now the uh, good thing is that the youngsters are coming forward and they are taking the role, they are taking the lead and I'm very positive about the uh, direction of pharmacy profession in Pakistan. And there are a lot of unethical pharmaceutical marketing trends in Pakistan and poor compliance of community pharmacy, the GPP, and compromise health related quality of life especially for the chronic diseases. So this made, this made us thought that, you know, there are like 600 local pharma companies in Pakistan, and I've, like I've mentioned, there are 80,000 registered drugs. So we thought that we should go and look how these local pharmaceutical products are perceived in Pakistan by the healthcare professionals in terms of their quality, safety, and price. So we conducted this study. It was basically a descriptive cross-sectional study, study, which included 812 respondents involving 293 physicians, 346 pharmacists, and 173 nurses. Basically, we used a semi-pre-validated, semi-structured questionnaire, which was already replicated in Afghanistan, India, and Bangladesh, having the similar healthcare system like ours. And then after the data collection, we analyzed the data. And we had some results, but before uh, sharing the results with you, I would like to share that how the healthcare team operates in Pakistan so that you can have a better understanding of these results. Basically, talking about the physicians, there are 107 medical colleges, and the doctors have been registered by pharmacy, uh, sorry, from, by Pakistan Medical and Dental Council. Uh, basically, the doctors operate in Pakistan as in, in four categories. The house officers, which have the basic degrees of MBBS with one or two uh, with one or two year of working experience, and there are the medical officers with, which have cleared their, who have cleared their part one exam of FC, FCPS with an experience of two to five years, and we 
have got specialists and then the GPs who run their own private clinics. And then we, then the most interesting thing in Pakistan is this, that the uh, head of the farms, uh, the head of the drug therapeutic committee is a doctor, and he is solely responsible for selection, drug selection, and, and, and he is mainly involved in a lot of drug procurement over there. And another uh, interesting fact is this, that even the doctor is head of Pharmacy Council of Pakistan. He's the president of Pharmacy Council of Pakistan. So now you can well imagine the monopoly of doctors back there. So if the, any doctor is sitting over here, they're most welcome to Pakistan, <laughs> on a lighter note. And then talking about the pharmacists in Pakistan, basically we have got three licenses over there. Type A license, which are being given to the pharmacist. Type B license is for the pharmacy assistant, uh, who has like got two years of training. And uh, then there is a third type of, third type of license, that is diploma holders. They, that is a certified training course of one year. And there is no right of generic substitution for the hospital pharmacist, and they are merely involved in clinical rounds with the doctors. However, now the situation is improving, and now they're being involved in procurement and purchasing of the drug. Uh, there's lack of pharmacists at the community pharmacies, but if uh, pharmacists is available at community pharmacies, they usually uh, do. They they usually offer the generic and brand uh, substitutions for the uh, for the patrons. And talking about the nurses, there are 162 registered nursing colleges in Pakistan. Uh, nurses are basically responsible for drug administration. But on an unofficial note, they have a strong influence in drug selection and brand substitution in Pakistan. And they basically make the mind of the patient to buy you know, uh, the type of brands which are being registered in Pakistan. So a nurse is a very important stakeholder in Pakistan, more than a pharmacist. So uh, now I'd like to share uh, quick results with you of the study. Basically, we asked about that if the healthcare professionals perceived that the local brands were more affordable or they have more side effects or they're more safe or reputable. So all the three healthcare professionals were satisfied with the, uh, with the local brands in terms of their affordability, safety, and reputation. But the nurses and physicians, they have some major concerns regarding the side effects of these local, uh, local brands. Then uh, five factors were identified which were affecting the prescribing or the procurement of these local brands, uh, local anti-diabetics and anti-hypertensive agents that were marketing techniques, non-adherence to GMP standards, lack of incentives of local brands prescribing, therapeutic failures, personal or pre-influence. So according to the nurses, the factor which was influencing most of the prescribing of these brands was uh, the lack of quality. And according to the pharmacist, uh, uh, they, they, was, they, they perceived it that uh, the local companies need to re-strategize their marketing techniques in order to promote these local brands. And that was confirmed by the physicians that they thought that they were not able to prescribe these brands or they were not able to procure them because they, the local companies are not offering them much incentives as compared to the multinational companies. And uh, then we identified the different factors that for the, in the current practices. All the three healthcare professionals were of the view that these local brands were being prescribed and procured due to cost effectiveness in the current practice. But there were different factors which are being uh, considered when these drugs are being prescribed or procured in the general practice. And those were availability of more combination, availability of more strengths, less side effects, patient demand, 
labeling and aesthetic appeal, patient compliance and socioeconomic condition. But the most important factor which was influencing uh, the promotion of these brands in the current practice was socioeconomic condition of the patient. And because the local brands are more cost effective, that is why patients have more access to them. And that has, that in turn has improved the patient, has improved patient compliance. So when we asked them about the, uh, uh, about comparison of multinationals and local brands, uh, according to the nurses, the products that were being manufactured by GSK were the best in terms of quality, safety, and price, while physician and nurses were more convinced with the products made by Abbott. But the good thing was this, that all the three healthcare professionals were also well satisfied with the local companies, and two of the uh, local companies were identified who had the best uh, brands comparable to the multinational brands. So we concluded that uh, the healthcare professional had positive perceptions regarding quality, safety, and price of locally manufactured medicines. However, socioeconomic conditions, patient compliance, peer influence, and use of incentives were few of the important factors for which should be considered for favoring the uh, prescribing and procurement of these drugs in the current practice. Physicians and pharmacists positively supported the use of locally manufactured medicines, whereas majority of the nurses preferred multinational brands for the treatment of diabetes and hypertension in Pakistan. There are a few pictures of the culture, food, and people in Pakistan. I just wanted to uh, quickly share them with you. And thank you very much. Thank you, Madiha. Uh, I've probably got time for one quick question, if anyone has a question. Can I ask one question with two parts? <laughs> um, so, uh, Madiha, um, is there an overarching body that um, oversees um, registration of the local products and the multinational products and the registration is actually an assessment of bioavailability as opposed to cost and other factors? Yeah. And the second one is, in every community pharmacy, is there a registered pharmacist? And what are the controls on antibiotics? Okay. So basically, there is a registered body which look after the registration of these products. Uh, and uh, as far as the community pharmacies are concerned, basically, uh, only type A license, like the pharmacist can... Uh, they are mandatory to be present at the pharmacy, but the biggest challenge which we are facing at community pharmacies is this, that the, usually these licenses are being rented to the owners of the community pharmacies, and the pharmacist is only available when they know that the drug inspector is coming for the inspection. And so that is the reason that we have not been able to control the sale of antibiotics and, over, and obviously the sale of POM drugs over there. So if you, can, if, you go, if you visit any community pharmacy in Pakistan, you can get any antibiotic you want, or even in, in some cases you can also, uh, also have access to narcotic drugs. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, can I now invite... <laughs> I'd like to invite Dr. Susan Mendez from the University of Melbourne to come and present. So, back to Australia, where our healthcare system is great. <laughs> it's great. It's not perfect, but it's very good. So, um, this is joint work with uh, Yu Ting Sang and Tani Scott, um, an economist. Um, and it's um, and it's it goes like this. So in 2013, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, um, three new oral anticoagulants got accepted in the in the PBS system. Before that, um, for over 60 years, warfarin 
was the, almost the only drug used uh, to treat patients with atrial fibrillation. And the question we want to look at is um, what affects Australian GPs' decisions to adopt this new medicine? The way we do this is um, we use Mabel. Mabel is a survey of Australian doctors that is currently running for the um, 11th consecutive year. And we collect detailed information on their personal characteristics, their medical training. We have a measure of risk preferences, um, big five measure on personality. We ask them about their practice style, their practice characteristics, and we collect uh, area characteristics of their work location. And we're going to use all those things for a subsample of doctors who allow us to link their records to PBS. So we have actual drug utilization linked to the survey data. And we look at two things. So the first outcome that we are going to look at is the speed of adoption, measure as the number of days until they first prescribe one of these uh, new oral anticoagulants. Now what we see is on average, they take 152 days since PBS approval. Over 80%, 70% of doctors have prescribed this NOAX for the first time after 200 days. And the, um, the adoption happens relatively quickly. But we, know, we don't care only about speed. The second thing that we look at is the intensity of adoption. And so we allow the data to tell us to define these two groups. We defined extensive early adopters in a conservative majority of adopters. And the difference is that, well, the extensive early adopters, they start adopting pretty fast, on average after 14 days. And they have around 40%, uh, they use around 40% of, the, uh, of the new, these new drugs. And the share increases across time. What we found is, so there are several factors that are associated with early adoption of these drugs. One is being male and being more likely to, tell clinic, to take clinical risks. But we find this only on the speed and not in the intensity. More on that in a second. Um, the other factors that we found are both um, associated with uh, faster adoption, but also on an increased intensity of adoption. So having higher prescribing volume, being the principal or the partner in the practice instead of being an employee, spending less time in a typical consultation, practicing in more affluent areas, practicing in areas with higher proportion of older patients, and practicing in Queensland. And this is a high, this, is a, this was a, a, a large, <laughs> um, coefficient that we found, uh, I'm still digging into that. So other characteristics such as personality, family circumstances, involvement with public hospitals and teaching activities are not statistically associated with early adoption. Now, um, we started this because we think that identifying factors affecting GPs' decisions to adopt new drugs is relevant to improving efficiency in healthcare in particular when the information that the GPs receive is that this new drug is considered to be more cost-effective than the older drug. 
the second thing that I would like to point out is that the measure of uptake is relevant. If we believe that speed is what we need to target, then why are women so slow? But if we believe that it's not speed but the intensity, then women might be doing the right thing. So the measure of how you, how you define uptake, it, it's going to play a role. We find large gender differences in the speed, but not in the intensity of adoption. Already said that. And um, that's something I'm looking into it. And this is the first paper to study how GPs' risk preferences and personality are associated with early adoption of NOACs. So I don't believe that there is any other survey in the world that capture doctors' risk preferences. And at the start, I thought, well, they have to deal with this large amount of information about many procedures, many drugs. And it might be that personality and risk plays a role, but I'm, I'm glad that personal risk preferences does not seem to affect this prescribing behavior, and personality doesn't do anything. And um, even though in Australia we have universal coverage, we still find geographic variation in access to new oral anticoagulants. And that's it, five minutes. Thank you, Susan. Questions? We've got time for a couple of questions. I'm going to jump in here, and I do have to declare, um, I used to work for Boeing at Ingelheim while they had the product familiarization program that predated the PBS listing. Is there any data available that comments on the uptake during that two-year period prior to PBS listing to see if it correlates with the post-PBS listing, the same people were in the PFP. I suspect that many of the early prescribers would have had patients in the PFP. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I guess there is. I, I suppose there must be data available, uh, but not available to me. So the only thing I observe is after PBS, that's the, the links, the, the Data linkage was only for MBS and PBS, which means I can only observe prescriptions after they uh, were introduced into the PBS system. However, I do agree that one of the important things in, in introducing and adopting new drugs is detailing. <laughs> and detailing, I, um, I assume, is targeted to cardiologists because these were the first uh, type of doctors who started using these new drugs. So that's why once I started looking at speed, I thought, well, these are general practitioners, and this general practitioner might have started using prescribing this new drug because the patient was already put on that drug, so it wasn't a decision of the practitioner per se. That's why I moved into a second step and look at, at the evolution of the share. Um, it might be that is a patient that came from a cardiologist who had already been put on that new drug. Cool. Okay, sorry. You just answered my, one of my questions, which was, you know, <laughs> had they already been put on it? The second one is that you looked at cost benefit, but did you also look at the clinical convenience? So obviously you've gone from something that needs tested a lot to something that doesn't need any testing, but then on the other hand, there's no reversible agent for it. So it's like riskier in that regard, but more convenient for a patient. So did you ask if, because this, with this particular drug, that's kind of a... Um, yeah, factor. that's why. Um, that's also why we thought risk might play a role. So during this period, so with warfarin, warfarin is that's how it has been explained to me. I'm an economist. <laughs> so these are all oral anticoagulants. They make your blood thinner. Uh, with warfarin, there was an antidote. So if your blood got 
really, really thin. You could bleed to death, but there was an, an, an antidote. With these three new drugs, during the time period that I have, which is from the introduction until 20, the end of 2015, there wasn't any available antidote to these new drugs. So learning as a GP, you need to learn from past experience. You need to decide whether you're going to put your uh, old patients into these new drugs or not, whether if you see a new patient, you want to introduce them to this new drug or not. So there is also a learning uh, component into the GP decision of uh, using or not these drugs. Um, thanks, really interesting talk, and the database sounds really interesting. I was just wondering, um, have you done any work to compare the Mabel database to see how representative of Australian general practice um, the participants are from that database, and what proportion actually do contribute their PBS data? So I didn't actually say the number. Yeah, so um, it is our final estimating sample is 575 doctors. Now, Mabel data is representative of uh, Australian doctors. From those, um, in terms of age and distribution and um, gender and um, all the characteristics that I can compare with uh, the general AMCO data, which is the, the directory, where we sample them from. Now, from those, um, around 2,000 doctors, so 1,000 GPs and 1,000 specialists, allow us to link their records. And that is still comparable in terms of age and location, but I can't compare them to anything else. And among those, then I had to look at doctors who had prescribed these drugs before so that, that we could make sure that these doctors actually were seeing patients with atrial fibrillation or with risk of stroke and uh, that they could be in our sample. So that reduced the sample to 575. Excellent. Thank you, Susan. Obviously, lots of questions, but just in the interest of time, just um, we'll move on. Can I welcome Dr. Mina Bucket to present? So Mina is from Bond University. Um, thank you very much for attending my presentation. Today, I'm going to be presenting my recent systematic review about resistance decay in individuals post-antibiotic exposure in primary care. So what do we know? We know that antibiotic resistance is an urgent global problem, with 10 million people are expected to die in year 2050. This number is 10 times those are going to die because of diabetes or even road traffic accidents. We know that antibiotic use drives resistance, which means the more antibiotic you use, the more resistant bacteria you would have in your own body. But what would happen after you stop taking antibiotics? How long does it take for resistant bacteria to decay? And does this vary by the type of bacteria or the type of antibiotic class? There is some evidence available in the literature about resistance decay. In 2010, a systematic review showed that it takes up to 12 months for resistant bacteria to regain susceptibility. However, the evidence from randomized control trial showed something different. Showed that it take up to six months post macrolide class antibiotic exposure and one month post penicillin class antibiotic exposure for, for bacteria to regain susceptibility. So we actually don't know. 
In order to find out, we performed a systematic review and a meta-analysis following rigorously PRISMA guidelines. We included people from the community or their isolates who were exposed to a short course of antibiotics compared against no, no exposure, and our outcome was a prevalence of resistant bacteria after a specified time point. We included only prospective study design. After screening more than 24,000 studies by title and abstract, more than 500 studies by full text, we included 25 studies with a, a relatively okay risk of bias. It's very painful, uh, <laughs> but I survived, and my colleagues as well, thank God. <laughs> So, as you can imagine, we have more than 15 forest plots, and I don't have enough time to present all of them. So, in short, we found out that in Streptococcus pneumonia, post-penicillin class antibiotic exposure, the odds of isolating resistance increased up to four folds and decreasing into 1.7 after about a month. And post-ecphalosporum class antibiotic exposure the odds of res isolating resistance directly after exposure was much less than penicillin class. However, after one month, it reached a similar level to those who were, ex who were exposed to penicillins. In Haemophilus influenza bacterium, resistance decay showed a different behavior reaching insignificant level after about three months after penicillin class antibiotic exposure. So what do we conclude? We conclude that antibiotic use increased bacterial resistance in individuals. We, we conclude that the odds of resistance developing and time to return to susceptibility varies by antibiotic class, and decay may be faster than previously reported for penicillin, specifically in respiratory streptococcus pneumonia, although there is unclear evidence for macrolide class exposure and there is not enough evidence about the different antibiotic classes and bacterium. Believe me, if there were, we would find it. <laughs> and thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Mina. I don't think you've looked at enough papers, but I'll, I'll let the group decide that. Um, any questions for Mina? Were you surprised that the decay was faster than you expected? Um, actually, yes, because uh, our initially we wanted to update the previously published systematic review, and we could not replicate their study, and we could not, I mean, they screened only 4,000. And uh, <laughs> when we tried to, to include the same number of their studies, we had to like screen around 29,000 initially. And so we rebuilt, we, we, we did a, a whole new systematic review, and it's just shocking to find only 25 studies exploring the topic. Yeah, okay, so it's not necessarily good news, it's a more a lack of evidence. Yeah, there's no evidence. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting, yeah. but how does it affect clinical decision making? What's the significance of this? Uh, why are you pursuing the line of research? and? What are you hoping to find out or change through it? Okay, um, thank you for your question. Actually, it, may, uh, it has a lot of um, effects. Uh, the first one I can think of is for clinicians. So maybe the first thing clinician can ask a patient, what was your last antibiotic you took? 
And maybe if they took a penicillin class or a cephalosporin class, maybe it would give you an idea about their resistance within their body. Of course, we don't know about the other. Um, you can get resistance from another individual, etc. But our main aim was to decrease the resistance load within the community. A second, second thing that I can think of is patients themselves. So now patients can actually know that they can contribute to the problem because there are lots of studies out there showing that the, the lack of ownership, they don't think they contribute to the problem of resistance. But now when it comes to make a decision uh, of taking antibiotics or not for a minor infection, they may actually rethink taking antibiotics and they, they think, okay, I don't want to take antibiotic now, uh, antibiotics now and I will save it for, a, for the future when, it, when I have a more severe infection. Thank you, Mina. Thank Very you, interesting. <laughs> so I'd now like to welcome our last speaker, uh, Amy Peterson, who's from Wyong and Central Coast Local Health District. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Amy. I'm the critical care pharmacist at Wyong Hospital on the Central Coast of New South Wales. Um, and we're a site that comprises of four facilities, with Gosford and Wyong being the largest sites. So as you've already heard, and I don't need to remind you, um, antimicrobial resistance is a very real and serious threat to human health, and antimicrobial stewardship, or AMS, is one strategy to reducing this risk. One of the challenges of AMS as a pharmacist is actively engaging prescribers in the cause. As the acting AMS pharmacist on the Central Coast in 2016, I was charged with the challenge of finding a fun and innovative way to promote Antibiotic Awareness Week. Our idea, an adaptation of the contextual fad game Pokemon Go. For any of you that didn't jump on board the Pokemon craze, it was a global phenomenon that launched in July 2016. The basic concept being that people catch and train Pokemon in order to battle each other. And you may have heard the slogan, gotta catch them all. So why not profit off its popularity to promote Antibiotic Awareness Week with the antibiotic themed Pokebiotic Go? Gotta kill them all by matching the right drug to the right bug. The aim of Pokebiotic Go was to engage junior medical officers and pharmacists in a fun and interactive way to learn about and invest in the threat of antimicrobial resistance. So how do you play? Pharmacists adopted the character of microbes, or bugs as they became affectionately known, which could be effectively killed with the right antimicrobials. This is our Gosford Pharmacy team, and this is our Wyong team during um, Antibiotic Awareness Week. It's a smaller team, so some pharmacists had to be multiple bugs um, in order to allow doctors the opportunity to kill as many diverse bugs as possible and thus learn about their treatment. Katie, who's our Klebsiella second from the left, um, doctors were pretty confident treating her, but Mel, our Stenotrophomonas, stumped a lot of them. Antimicrobials were hidden around the hospital in the form of paper cutouts with the names of antibiotics written on them. In order to represent the aims of restriction systems, Narrower spectrum antibiotics were hidden in larger quantities and in easier to find places such as on computer stations. Broader restricted antimicrobials were only released in very small amounts and sneakily hidden in corridors or under benches. The doctors loved the game. Here are some of our Central Coast doctors with their stashes of antibiotics and you can see Jack's collected so many that they're falling all over the floor. Lucy had a very um, creative way of storing hers in her folder and there you can see Brattati sorting through what she'd collected. Here Brad is again when she's sorted all her antibiotics into classes. She had the help of the whole renal team behind her who thought that teamwork might be the strategy to winning. Once the doctors had found an antimicrobial, they had to find the right pharmacist bug to match it to to kill them. 
An optimal choice, such as flu clocks for Staph aureus, gave them three points. A correct but not optimal choice, such as keftaraline for Staph aureus, would only get them one point. Too easy, what's the catch? So as antibiotic awareness week progressed, the bugs became more resistant. As shown by the resistance bar at the bottom of the microbe, as the days pressed on, the bug became more resistant and hence less antibiotics were effective at killing it. If doctors had used up all their broader spectrum antimicrobials at the start of the week, they no longer had any to use during the latter half of the week when the bugs were only sensitive to last line agents. Many doctors who'd built up large supplies of Benpen or Ampicillin were very disappointed to find that they were unable to kill any pharmacists by the end of the week. It provided an excellent opportunity for pharmacists to point out that this is where we're headed in actual reality in the treatment of our patients in the real non-pokebiotic world. Also hidden around the hospital were sensitivity tokens shown by the agar plate on the screen, which allowed the doctors to find out the sensitivities of the bugs to use directed therapy and not waste their antimicrobials. As the week drew to a close, it became apparent that there were two JMOs vying for the title, and other doctors joined either Team Jack or Team Wendy to assist their colleague in becoming the inaugural Pokebiter Go champion. Wendy was the ultimate winner, receiving a Coles Meyer voucher kindly donated by the National Home Doctor Service, but Jack didn't miss out on a prize and went home with the giant chlamydia you can see on the screen. <laughs> Jack and Wendy weren't the only winners. We've had close to 40 JMOs officially compete each year for the last two years, with many more assisting the front runners. Allied Health and Nursing have also gotten, gotten on board helping JMOs find antibiotics or track down pharmacists. All JMOs gained take-home messages about antimic antimicrobial resistance previously unknown. They learned about resistance patterns of particular bacteria and saw firsthand the complications of treating resistant bugs. So in conclusion, Pokebiotago was an excellent event to stimulate multidisciplinary interaction and initiate the conversation about the threat of antimicrobial resistance. It was an innovative, fun way to promote Antibiotic Awareness Week that was also educational and effective at getting its message to the target audience. We've run this for the last two years, and I'd be very happy for any suggestions now that Pokemon is no longer in favour. The only thing that I can think of is perhaps antibiotic Tinder. <laughs> I encourage everyone to get involved in Antibiotic Awareness Week this year and come up with new and innovative, innovative ways to promote this important issue. Thank you. I love it. And I think antibiotic Tinder might work because you've proven for a good cause grown adults will do anything. So it's <laughs> fabulous. Um, any questions for Amy? I have a question. Have you seen, do you, are you doing any kind of evaluation in terms of were you seeing any changes in utilisation? Yeah, um, I have presented this in another forum and that was a question that I got. I guess <laughs> at the time it was more just about providing an activity for Antibiotic Awareness Week that was more interactive than our general FOIA displays. Yeah. Um, so it really wasn't on my mind when I was creating it to evaluate anything. So we don't have any results more than just anecdotal feedback from the JMOs. Yeah. Um, we obviously do collect ongoing data about our antibiotic use, but we haven't really evaluated this as an intervention. Um, it probably is something that we will look at in the future if we do do some other kind of activity because, yeah. you know, anecdotally, the doctors had notebooks that they were studying. I've never seen so many have the, the um, susceptibility page on the AMH open, um, and they really took it quite seriously. <laughs> a bit of competition works a treat. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank everybody, thank Amy. Well, well done, everyone. That's the end of that session. 
So thank you all for your contributions and time. <laughs>